the morning began with starlings in the house, which meant for Wallace and Simone it would end with cleaning bird poop off the floors and the walls and anything else hit by avian bombs. If you've never experienced an angry starling swooping down from above and attacking your head, you've never tried to pick apples in an orchard planted on a native burial site. And while there had been the occasional handful swooping down the chimney and causing mayhem in the house, it was always restricted to the ground floor. But this was new. What sounded like a multitude of flocks converging en masse on the upper floor of the house woke both girls just after dawn. And it wasn't just restricted to flying down the hallway looking for the exit. The birds were pounding at their doors with their beaks while scratching at them with their little starling claws. Both girls stood in a confused haze at their respective bedroom door, adrenaline sharpening their senses while exhaustion strained their ability to make sense out of what their senses were telling them. The gunfire and dynamite blasts had only died down briefly from their night of paranormal terror, during which time they had each fallen asleep with their cell phone clutched in their hand. Once again, each girl found herself relieving the tension this new paranormal wrinkle was inducing by texting jokes back and forth about Alfred Hitchcock's ghost conjuring his birds from the beyond, and whether it was his twisted version of their invitation to Hogwarts. Isn't that what Marina was supposed to be? Simone said. But until Hitchcock's ghost had taken his birds and left the house of Fantods, both girls found themselves in the same position they'd been in throughout the night, stuck in their rooms. The risk of flying bird poop was secondary to the risk of being hit by sharp starling beaks being used by the house of Fantods as projectiles. The problem this created had more to do with the lack of bathroom facilities in their bedrooms than fear of flying bird poop. They'd been in lockdown since breaking glass started flying the night before, and the human bladder can only take so much before it lets its owner know they've got a problem. And doing the pee-pee dance was not going to solve it. They were going to have enough of a mess to clean up from the birds, Adding to it was not going to make their day any better, or their sense of dignity. Wallace distracted herself by reading Marina's cryptic email over and over again, texting Simone a question. Do you think Marina may actually have been suggesting we shoot the damn birds with that happiness-is-a-warm-gun bit? Did she know this was going to happen? If she did, it would have been a really shitty prophecy, dude. That's dudette to you, little sister. Wallace wondered if what Marina meant was they should find a way to replace all the dark energy the house was generating with something more positive. And just in case the house has been anticipating that very move, switch it up. Like singing happy, happy, joy, joy one minute and then quoting lines from Family Guy the next. That shit's hilarious. It seemed worth a try. It couldn't possibly be any more undignified than a girl trying to piss out the window. Closing your eyes and going to your happy place is complicated for anyone, and even more so for a kid in the foster care system. For many of them, 
believing in a happy place is like believing in Santa Claus or a forever home. It doesn't really exist. So Wallace closed her eyes and went to her funny place. Most foster children are a wellspring of ironic humor, and the reason is obvious. Despite enduring the horrific trauma of losing their family of origin, they're told by everyone who comes into their orbit that life is hard and they just have to toughen up. Stop your crying. Feeling sorry for yourself never did a bit of good for anybody becomes the standard-issue mantra in a one-size-fits-all world of heartless platitudes for abandoned children. And for Wallace, it always seems like the whole time those nuggets of heartless wisdom were being repeated to her, the radio was playing country-western music in the background always with some big strapping dude, the epitome of American grit and fortitude, crying over his beer about how his girl done gone and left him. The disconnect always made Wallace's head hurt, and her heart. How is grieving okay for the jilted lover and the widow, but not the child who's lost her family? And so ironic humor becomes the multifunctional defense mechanism and default happy place for the lost children of the House of Phantods. Unfortunately, tapping into that energy in order to battle the rage starlings from Hitchcock Hell only made the problem worse. It did the exact opposite of diluting the rage bird energy shitting on everything. Neither foster sister had the vaguest idea how to conjure positive energy out of thin air during a bird attack. Using a warm gun made a lot more sense to both of them at this point, but they didn't have to struggle with the dilemma for long. As Simone sat on the foot of her bed, burning the last of her cell phone battery, watching an instructional video on YouTube about meditation, the noise abruptly stopped, as if it had never been there. Is it over? she texted Wallace. Each girl opened their door a crack to see the hallway completely empty of winged projectiles. Gingerly at first, to avoid any glass or droppings or wood splinters, each stepped out into the hallway, and each was hit with a wave of confusion worse than the one they had when they woke. They had expected to see the hallway littered with broken glass and shattered light fixtures from the night before, and for all of it to be littered with feathers and bird poop. They expected to see their doors scratched and pockmarked, but there was absolutely no sign that anything at all had taken place, not the night before, and not just now, except for a single item sitting on the floor midway between both girls, and the dragonfly was hovering just above it. Both girls stood peering at the hairbrush with the carving of a marina in its ivory handle. The dragonfly began circling both of them, moving outward in an ever-widening circle. Wallace and Simone just stood looking at each other. That's the brush from the dream I had two nights ago, Wallace said. How is this here, and why? Simone didn't want to even think about the hairbrush. She was too busy wondering if they just had some kind of shared hallucination and if that kind of thing is even possible. 
Do people go insane simultaneously often? She looked down at the cell phone in her hand. Since there was nothing to see, she hadn't bothered recording any of what they'd just endured. Not during the night, and not this morning. Who would believe what they'd both just been through if there was no proof of it? Did any of it even happen? As the last of her battery gave out, the cell phone shut down before she could grab a picture of the hairbrush. Even if she had taken the shot, who would believe it had materialized there out of nothing more than a dream? Once again, Simone was plunged into a dark place of wondering who would believe what she'd just experienced. The dragonfly continued to draw an invisible circle around them, connecting them both in a way that might have been a comfort to them if they both weren't standing there, struggling with the sense that they'd just lost their grip on reality and were sinking into an unknown, even darker than the House of Phantods had already taken them to. Sure, it's weird to find a dead starling on the porch upon my return to the cabin. If this were any deeper in the woods or up in the foothills, I'd be looking for signs of the folk voodoo you sometimes find in the backwoods. Maybe it's because I was so focused on that mystery that I didn't notice the noise coming from inside the cabin until I had the door open and it hit me in the face, literally. Ever notice how sharp a starling's beak can be? It was my first thought when a massive flock rushed at me and I froze like a deer in headlights until instinct kicked in and I did the duck and cover. But not before getting hit in the face and head by several of them. It felt like their exodus from the cabin went on for an eternity. The sound of breaking glass means I'll be needing to replace dishes and most likely the kerosene lamps. If that was the framed photo of the Milky Way smashing to the floor, Ned is going to be pissed. There must be hundreds of these damn birds, and they're angry with me. How the hell did they get into the cabin? Ned doesn't have a fireplace. There's no chimney, just the wood stove pipe, and the stove's grate is latched. I'm curled up in a ball on the porch, eyes shut tight arms protecting my head from any more bird strikes. The sound of raging starlings begins to fade until I'm pretty sure there's no more of them. After a minute, I sit up and reach for the side of my face and head. There's blood oozing from where some of them managed to get me, enough to drench my hands and the cuff of Ned's jacket. Damn it, one more mess to clean up. It takes a minute for my eyes to adjust after keeping them shut so tight. I'm not looking forward to cleaning the mess those birds have left in the cabin. 
I'm not sure why it's taking so long for my vision to clear as I stand here in the doorway, though, because I'm not seeing any mess. No feathers, nothing knocked down, not one spot of bird shit. The little cottage curtains over the sink are untouched. The lanterns, the dishes, the framed picture of the galaxy on the wall, they're all fine. The only sign that anything at all went on in the cabin sits on the floor in the middle of the room. I cross to it and bend over, trying to make sense out of what I'm seeing. I blink. Twice. It's a hairbrush. One with a marina carved into its ivory handle. I know this brush. I also know the dragonfly that's hovering over it. It's the one from that dream. The dream that started all the weirdness. The one with the demon in the bed. The dragonfly is doing exactly what it did with Wallace in that dream. It's circling my head, just like I've seen it do in countless dreams since, and now it's hovering right in front of my face. Am I the only one who wonders if my dream buddies have begun to notice the high strangeness stepping out of their dreams and planting itself right smack in the middle of their waking lives? That would make what they're going through twice as strange since that house is about as strange as it gets, and not in a good way. I cross over to the sink area and pull out Ned's first aid kit from under the sink. The dragonfly follows me and just hovers, watching. I yank some gauze from the box and squeeze alcohol on it, wincing preemptively as I reach for the gaping wound I felt on the side of my head just minutes ago. It's not there. Not one single wound that had been oozing blood just a minute ago is there. And the blood I got all over my hands when I felt them? It's gone. So is the blood I got on Ned's jacket. No blood. No wounds. No broken glass or curtains brought down. Not one single feather or drop of bird shit. It happened, right? I, I didn't just imagine all of it, did I? Was it some kind of daytime nightmare? Has the stress of living out of the pickup and running from those men caught up with me? What the fuck is going on? Am I losing my mind? is never to intervene this early, but the opposition gave us no choice this time. I was certain the subjects were strong enough to endure the usual psychic attacks from Dark Energy's army. I still am. They're usually pretty harmless. It's a logical trade-off for the cloaking they provide, keeping them from locating her long enough for Cassandra to complete her dream cycle. But I wasn't counting on their army resorting to gaslighting. They usually only use that as a last resort, 
and even then it's only on the most powerful subjects they can't break otherwise. Which tells me dark energy skills at Intel are getting better, because these subjects are the most powerful we've ever worked with. Nothing worries us more than seeing dark energy grow more sophisticated in its tactics. It's learning exponentially, which means we've got to step up our game and improvise. Of all the psychic attacks it could hit these subjects with, gaslighting is by far the most destructive. Some never restore their ability to trust others, or themselves, after being the victim of it. It's made even worse when their gaslighter is intangible. They're left with no one to point the finger of blame at, but themselves. More than anything, this program relies on our subjects not just trusting us implicitly, but trusting themselves, especially their intuition about us. The risks are all too obvious. Even though Cassandra has a solid foundation from years of our training program, she's isolated and without any real human support. It won't take much to push her over the edge into a place that's hard for us to reach. And the girls are too new at this, too young and without any real local support right smack in the middle of the worst hotspot of dark energy we've seen. If their emotional landscape grows too dark before they've learned what they need to, it may lead the opposition to them no matter how careful Cassandra is. And the last thing any of us need is for the opposition to make matters worse by increasing the dosage they've been giving the beast in their deadly experiment. It may be time to accelerate Cassandra's activation by immersing her even deeper in this dream cycle, which could be problematic. There is always the risk of psychosis during activation. Add to it the effect of dark energy's gaslighting, and she's going to be battling some pretty nasty demons. If it's from inside a padded cell, she'll be doing it with very little support. Between the dark energy that concentrates in those places, and the drugs she'll be pumped full of. She'll be on her own until we can get through to her with what she needs most. Unconditional love and healing compassion. And that kind of support takes time unless she's learned to call it to her, which she hasn't. Yet. It leaves little more than the dragonfly to keep her anchored to our connection. And the adrenaline-fueled energy those girls are now pumping out is going to be a beacon to the opposition unless we can ramp up our efforts at cloaking. If they tap into either girl, we may lose both of them entirely. The dragonfly may be able to be in all places at one time, because that's the nature of time, but it can only do so much. At this point, our only choice was to send through that hairbrush as an anchor and hope the dragonfly helps them recognize the positive intention it's been sent with. Anchoring them to that positive intention is our best weapon right now. The risk, of course, is that our staged synchronicities will create more problems than they solve, especially since Cassandra already illustrated in that novel she wrote how it's being used by the opposition to gang-stalk its targets. It's what put her on their radar. The last thing she needs right now is for her paranoia to lead them right to her. Since dark energy seems to be growing increasingly addicted to what the opposition is dosing it with, I suspect that's what the whole point of the psychic attack is. Experimenting with intelligence-enhancing drugs on humans is one thing. 
there is little risk to anyone but the individual taking it. Doing it with dark energy is another thing entirely. It isn't just this universe at stake. It's all of them. Gaslighting is real and one of the most insidious forms of domestic abuse there is. If you suspect you've been a victim of gaslighting, or you are questioning what's happening in your relationship, reach out to an advocate at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They are there to support you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. You can call them at 1-800-799-7233, or you can visit the National Domestic Violence Hotline at www.thehotline.org, where you can chat with someone who understands and is there to help. Thank you.